From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Lots of Coloradans are finding out they have COVID with a test at home, and most aren't reporting their results to the state. That means the high case numbers are way higher than we think. At the same time, people just aren't getting as sick. How does all this factor into the current surge? We talk with a man who's tasked with predicting the unpredictable. Then one brother succeeds in college, the other doesn't. We'll explore what accounts for the disparity among Hispanic men in Colorado. And the language of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe is endangered, but a new digital dictionary will preserve it, and it's still evolving. There's a word for telephone, but maybe we have to make up another word for cell phones. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The Omicron variant has thrown some new unknowns into efforts to predict the path of COVID-19. This week, the number of cases in Colorado rose above 1 million, and hospitalizations are rising too. But as always, the picture is more complicated. Joining us is John Samet. He's the dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. He's part of the state group that tracks the virus. And Dean Samet, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you, Andrea. So cases are at an all-time high, but that number must be much higher. We know a lot of people who are testing positive or taking those tests at home. They're supposed to report the results to the state, but I can't imagine most of them do. So how much higher are overall case counts than we think? Well, I think the easy answer is a lot higher. And uh, of course, part of the tricky nature of this virus has always been uh, that it can be asymptomatic in people who are infected. Uh, It can be mild and perhaps the symptoms overlooked. And fortunately with Omicron, uh, it is mild. So I I think the easiest answer is there must be an awful lot more cases that are getting uh, out there than are being reported uh, to the state, whether it's failure to report positive home tests or people are uh, just not so sick, not getting tested, and uh, there we have it. So we really don't know at this point much more than a lot of people in Colorado are probably infected. Among the biggest concerns here is where hospitalizations are headed with so many cases. Even if you account for the new variant being less severe, as you said, and many people being vaccinated, more cases are going to mean more hospitalizations. What do you look at to project where they're headed, where hospitalizations are headed? Right. So we really do two things. We use our epidemic model to take the curve of hospitalizations and say, where is it likely to go based on what we know about the virus? Uh, The other thing that we have been doing is looking at the curve in Colorado and saying, well, how does it look in relationship to places where the epidemic has played out a little faster, where we're behind. So 
London, for example, we're a few weeks uh, behind in terms of our time course, or New York. And, you know, by analogy, say, well, if what if we were London? What would we expect? How, much, how many more days will we go up and how high might the peak be? I will say that at this point, um, we are probably still going to see a rise for another week or so, and then hopefully a fall if we are going to look like London, uh, which is falling, or New York, where perhaps uh, the curve is beginning to uh, turn the corner and go down. The worry with hospitals, of course, is whether they'll have the capacity to serve patients and serve them well. There's the issue of staffing. Many hospital staff have left their jobs due to burnout. Others are out sick with COVID. Can you give us your sense of what you expect hospitals will see in the upcoming weeks um, in terms of patient care? Yeah, so I think a couple of points first is um, background. We know that uh, a substantial number of the people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 are not hospitalized primarily because they are ill with COVID-19, the disease itself, but they're being picked up when they come in. Second, we do know that the length of stay during the Omicron time period is much shorter on average than during the uh, Delta time period. So that's good news. Then, you know, the bad news side you already pointed to, our our problem is not beds, it's being able to staff them given the burden placed on healthcare workers and how many are now uh, infected with uh, Omicron. So I, you know, I I think right now we were yesterday at about 1,577 confirmed patients with COVID-19 Coloradans in the hospital. If that number starts to head up towards 2,000, we know we really are sort of up against uh, care capacity. I think if we begin to turn the corner in the next week, if the rise is not so precipitous over the remainder of this week, we'll be okay. But um, I think we can't exclude the possibility that we are going to be heading towards uh, hitting the capacity that we can staff. Now, hospitalizations haven't yet been as high as they were at their peak a year ago. Do you expect them to reach that point? You know, that's hard to know. I think it's certainly possible. Our, our peak uh, last uh, November was somewhere around 18 18- 60, uh, as I recall. So we're about 300 uh, short. And we've been going up by 70 or 80 more Coloradans hospitalized with COVID-19 over the last few days. So if we stayed on that trajectory, we could be heading right towards that uh, November peak. I certainly hope we don't, that it will slow, but it's certainly um, uh, a possibility that can't be excluded. You write a weekly report for the School of Public Health, and in your recent edition, you write, quote, one thing we learned from the virus is it's going to stay with us. We're going to be living with it in the foreseeable future. You point to this concept of a new normal with COVID. What could that look like? Yeah, I I, I think, um, first off, uh, at this point, we know enough about the virus to say that it's going to be with us in one form or another. The ideal is that it becomes endemic. That means it's going to be here with us, but that we can suppress these kind of epidemic, pandemic peaks that have really stood the world, um, set the world back. We will have to do that with 
good surveillance, good epidemiology, and also maintaining a high rate of vaccination. So I think if we do things right, we use all the tools that we have. We hopefully can have this endemic form where no doubt there'll be outbreaks, likely among those who are not vaccinated, but we can avoid these uh, global pandemic um, rises. So that's where I'd like to see us in this new normal. And I think we know how to get there. It's just, it's going to take work. It's going to take a lot of building of infrastructure and making certain that people understand that uh, they need to be vaccinated for themselves and for everyone else. Dean Samet, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Delighted to be with you today. John Samet is the dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. He's also a member of the state group that tracks COVID-19. John Daly is here now to add some of what he's found in his recent reporting about where COVID-19 is headed. And John, welcome to the show. Good morning, Andrea. We just talked with Dean Samet about how the state is likely missing a lot of positive cases because people are taking tests at home. They aren't being reported to anyone. There's another issue with these antigen tests or rapid tests. They apparently miss a lot of positive cases, especially with the Omicron variant. Can we expect a lot of people who have tested negative are walking around with the virus right now? You know, in general, rapid tests have a lower sensitivity than lab-processed PCR tests. That means they produce more false negatives. If you get a negative result, some Colorado experts think you should treat it as if you never took the test. Uh, Antigen tests, these home tests are not great at detecting asymptomatic people because antigen tests are looking for your body's reaction to the virus, not detecting the virus itself. But if you test positive, you almost certainly have COVID-19. And so that uh, makes these antigen tests a helpful tool despite the limitations, especially since demand for PCR tests due to Omicron is taxing laboratories. Uh, you know, the Omicron variant is spreading so rapidly as we just heard from John Samet, you know, it's safe to assume that there are a lot of people walking around with the virus. So let's go back to this idea of hospital capacity. What do you hear from doctors and hospitals about what we can expect in the upcoming weeks? Well, two things, and, you know, they are connected. First, you know, it's a matter of simple math. Some number of cases, especially among the unvaccinated, will lead to hospitalizations. So let's say we have 70,000 new cases like we had since the end of last week. If 1% requires hospitalization, that's 70, sorry, 700 new patients. Mm-hmm. So the big worry is how big this wave is. And you might remember that phrase we've been talking about, uh, you know, a lot, a lot during the pandemic, flatten the curve. Well, one expert I spoke with, Dr. Eric Pershla, he's the chief of infectious diseases at CU's School of Medicine. He told me he thinks now is the time to hunker down when possible. He says he's severely limiting his visits to locations outside his home or work, at least until this wave come down, comes down, which may be soon, hopefully. And uh, you know, we'll just have to see how it plays out. Of course, some people are going to balk at the idea of hunkering down now and might point to the potential effect on the economy. But this doctor's hoping this would be short term, and he's worried hospitals could be near a breaking point. In any case, what could the growth of hospitalizations look for patients? We already know it's affecting care. Yeah, you know, um, 
first, doctors and state public health leaders want you to know that if you're sick, if you're having a medical emergency, a heart attack or a stroke, do what you normally would do, which is absolutely seek medical help. Call 911 if it's an emergency. But with the system strained, that means if you need hospital care, expect delays and hospital staff to be stretched thin. And that means nurses caring for more patients than they normally do. That means possible delays for tests or procedures. And I guess I'd expect to see elective, also called scheduled surgeries, get limited or even postponed if the numbers keep rising and just get too high. Let's look at this issue that John Samet brought up. Um, I think it's interesting that it's come up in several reports. This point that there are a lot of people who are hospitalized for other conditions but happen to have COVID too. Explain that a little bit and what's happening. Sure. Yeah, this is really interesting. You know, uh, hospitals say they're seeing a shift in the patient populations because of this variant, and it's different from other waves. And in the UC Health System, they reviewed their patient charts, and a majority of the patients that were hospitalized with COVID-19 last week were admitted for reasons other than the virus, like heart attacks, strokes, injuries, or other illnesses. Of about uh, 350 COVID-19 positive patients, about a third were admitted primarily due to COVID-19 complications, but the rest, so two-thirds, were admitted to the hospitals for other medical reasons. And they're calling these incidental cases. And they were found to be positive when they got routine hospital testing that occurs uh, with all admissions. Uh, The state epidemiologist yesterday said that in many cases, COVID-19 is continuing to complicate their hospitalization. And it's still putting a significant strain on the healthcare system. And, you know, we should also note that the vast majority of patients vaccinated uh, or or, sorry, hospitalized with COVID-19 right now are unvaccinated uh, in the state. That figure is 71 percent. So what will you be watching for in the coming days? You know, just kind of like what we've been talking about and what we heard from John Samet. I mean, how big is this wave? The, the bigger the wave of hospitalizations, the harder it'll be for hospitals to cope, the worse it is for everyone, really, especially anyone who needs care in a hospital. And that's why nurses, doctors, public health officials are all urging people to do what they can to limit transmission. And that's what we've been talking about for months and months now. That means getting vaccinated, getting boosted wearing a well-fitted N95 mask and avoiding crowded indoor spaces. You know, if Coloradans can do that and and help limit transmission and flatten the curve, the hope is that the hospitals will avoid the worst and uh, they'll be there to help us if we get sick with COVID and everything else that we need them for. John, thanks so much. You bet. That's CPR's health reporter, John Daly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. 
Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. Your local King Superstore may be especially short-staffed right now. On Wednesday, thousands of grocery workers in the greater Denver area went on strike. The group includes baggers, checkers, stockers, butchers, pharmacy technicians, and more. What do we want? When do we want it? What do we want? When do we want it? It's the first grocery worker strike in Colorado since the late 90s, and it could last up to three weeks. CPR's Matt Bloom has been covering everything leading up to this point. That includes the changes in organized labor since the start of the pandemic. And hi, Matt. Hey, Andrea. You were out at the picket lines on the first day of the strike. What was it like? I went to a couple King Supers stores in Denver, and it was, it was pretty interesting. There weren't huge crowds of picketers, but what the union did was station clusters of workers right outside of store entrances, near gas pumps, and even right by the entrance to the parking lot where you turn in off the street. And all the workers are waving these big white signs that say, please do not patronize. The goal here was to catch shoppers as soon as they arrived and let them know that they're on strike. And I mean, it It worked. I saw some, but not all customers turning away. The parking lot filled up throughout the morning, but it still just felt very slow at the store. I spoke with a bunch of workers. Many felt like the community was listening to their message. Cassie Cahill is an overnight stalker. She was passing out hand warmers and water bottles to everyone. We're not asking for anything too drastic. We're just asking to basically be respected and be having our thoughts heard. And so if you would just not shop at King Supers while we're striking, and there will be plenty of information about when we're done striking. Workers took shifts throughout the day, and they plan to be back out there on the picket line again today. So give us a little background. Why are Denver area workers striking, and how did things get to this point? Negotiations for a new contract between the union and King Super's parent company, Kroger, started last fall. And pretty quickly, it became clear that the two sides were far apart. The union, United Food and Commercial Workers, wants a much higher minimum wage. They haven't named an exact amount publicly, but I've heard anywhere from $18 to $20 an hour. They also want more armed security inside stores to enforce mask requirements for customers and and protect staff, among other asks. Things got more complicated uh, last month when the union filed an unfair labor practices lawsuit against King Supers during negotiations. Their claim is the company has been hiring temporary workers at a higher wage to fill union job vacancies in stores. Mm. The union was very angry about this. They held a strike vote earlier this month, which passed. Um, the current contract for workers then expired last week, and so now they're working with, or now they're not working without a contract. And negotiations have completely stalled since. What's the company said in response? King Supers has put multiple offers forward. Their most recent one included about $170 million in an investment in wage and benefit increases. Um, That would bring starting pay up to $16 an hour for workers. The company's president in a statement said that it's the largest wage increase in King Super's history. Uh, They've also requested the help of a federal mediator to resolve the dispute. But the union says their proposal still is not enough to keep up with the rising cost of living in Colorado. 
This feels like the latest in a series of conflicts, ones that we've seen between workers and major employers in Colorado and across the country. What is happening out there? Yeah, yeah. We're seeing union membership across the country slowly grow for the first time in around 50 years. I spoke with James Walsh. He's a professor at CU Denver that studies labor movements. He says that the pandemic and the rising cost of living has had a big influence on that trend. What's happening nationally with labor, workers are strong today and they, and they understand that they have strength they didn't realize they had a year or two ago. And that's that consciousness. So this is a strike of that's connected directly to a new consciousness for workers. Workers also have more leverage right now because there are a lot more jobs available. Here's Walsh again. There's a rush upward right now in the labor market to companies that have the, you know, the wherewithal and to pay workers a more dignified wage and offer them more better safety and benefits. And that's what we're seeing. That's what the data says we're seeing is not necessarily workers resigning, but workers switching. That's something that King Supers and many, many major employers in Colorado have been struggling with. Workers know this and they're using it as a way to ask for better pay since there are a lot of other employers offering that already. So what does King Supers, the union, say will help end the strike? Uh, how long could this go on? Well, what really stuck out to me in talking with, with Walsh and the union was that it seems like the public has a pretty big role in this when the strike ends. If folks don't shop at King Supers during the strike, it might force the company to give the union what it wants, which could then end the strike faster. Uh, but there's really no way to know. I mean, when I went out to stores, I met several customers. One was Frank Brown. He said he's been shopping at King Supers for over 30 years, but he decided not to yesterday when he visited his local store in South Denver and saw the strikers. I think the customers realize that the employees are valuable. They're very valuable to all of us. They're frontline workers. They're essential workers. They're the same as doctors and nurses, as far as I'm concerned. They're on the front lines of this. So treat them fair. It's unclear when negotiations will resume still. The company says stores will remain open for as long as the strike goes on, but obviously there will be fewer workers. Uh, contracts for other King Supers and City Market stores across the state are also set to expire later this month and in February. So this could be the start of more disruptions at stores outside of the metro area. But just to be clear, the only stores striking for now are ones in the greater Denver area. Stores in Colorado Springs, mountain communities, and the Western Slope are not striking yet. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Matt Bloom covering the King Super strike, which started Wednesday. He'll keep us updated on developments in the days and weeks ahead. When we come back, two brothers, one succeeds in college, one doesn't. What accounts for the disparity in the rates for Hispanic men in Colorado? We'll talk about that next. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In Breckenridge, spelling matters. Thomas Breckenridge, with an E in the middle, came through in the 1840s with the Fremont Expedition. They put his name on the map near the place he lost a mule. An embarrassment for Mr. Breckenridge, but not for long. By 1859, the gold rush was on, especially in the boom town near that spot of wilderness. 
John C. Breckenridge, with an I in the middle, was vice president then, and just the sort of politician to flatter if you were angling for a federal post office. The folks in Breckenridge changed the spelling to Breck-in-ridge and got the post office. But then the Civil War broke out. Breck-in-ridge joined the Confederacy, and Breck-en-ridge quietly went back to its original spelling. A hundred years later, ski trails were cut through the woods where a man once lost a mule. And today, Breck, as some locals call it, is one of the hottest zip codes in the Colorado high country. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Coble and Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Most Hispanic men in Colorado who graduate from high school don't go to college, and those who do attend at lower rates than any other racial or ethnic demographic. Chalkbeat Colorado reporter Jason Gonzalez followed two brothers, Jimmy and Luis Perez, who live in northeast Denver. Luis attends college while Jimmy works in construction. Their story is part of a series looking at the gap in college attendance rates among Hispanic men. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell us about these brothers, Jimmy and Luis Hernandez, and how their paths diverged. So Jimmy and Luis, they went to the same high school. Their mom wanted to have them both go to college, but only Luis made it. Uh, Jimmy actually uh, wasn't able to fulfill his college dreams but Luis is now enrolled at Metropolitan State University of Denver. And why did you pick these particular brothers? What does their story tell you? I picked them, and when I I started to talk to them, I realized that um, this bigger issue in the state of um, Hispanic men not reaching college, that the two of them really illustrated this in a way that they come from the same place. They have, uh, you know, the same family expectations, but the way the system has been set up, you can have uh, different outcomes within the same family. In your story, you say the Hernandez family expected the children would go to college. What do you think was the main factor preventing Jimmy from ending up in college like his brother did? So J- Jimmy is the oldest and the would have been uh, if he was able to go to college, the first to be um a college student in the family, but as he was trying to navigate what it takes to get to college, you know, the things that that held him back, he didn't even know what uh, the financial aid applications were. He didn't really know what his college options were, and there was very little help to get him through that process of figuring out how to become a college student, how to enroll, and ultimately fulfill his dreams. What did Luis have that enabled him to head off to college? So Luis at first felt like he had the same sort of experience as as Jimmy, but that was until Metropolitan State University of Denver stepped in. They have a program called Pathways to Possible that helps connect high school students to the college. And Luis was able to take advantage of that program, and they connected him with financial aid resources. They helped him through the application process, and they give him uh, coaches and mentors now that he's in college. About 39% of Hispanic males who graduate from high school go on to college. That compares to about 46% of Black men and 52% of Hispanic women. And if we look at 
the overall rate, about 56% of high school graduates in Colorado go on to college. Obviously, this key barrier for many people is money. And aside from getting help with financial aid applications, how do families like the Hernandezes, who don't have a lot of money, make ends meet? The family all has to pitch in and work. So um, Luis, even though he's in college, he's, he's still working. He's still working at a factory with his mom. Uh, and his brother, Jimmy, works a an asphalt construction job. Um, so everybody in the family really pitches in to help. They are, are fortunate and they have been able to do well in some respects for themselves. But from the financial aspect, they don't have everything to make college work. It's something extra that they just don't have. And it, it can be very difficult for families who don't have the financial means to be connected to all of the resources that help them get through college. Is it possible to get significant help so you're really only paying a little bit out of pocket? Um, and that's also always relative. Yes, it is. Um, and, and you're right, it is relative. But there are resources out there for students. Uh, when I say financial aid, there are federal grants and uh, scholarships that are available to students to be able to get through college and, and help them with, with the expenses. But we as a state over the years have increased how much it takes to go to college. So that's put a burden on students. So those scholarships and that financial aid that they get from the federal government might not go as far as they previously had thought. And there's this critical point that even if someone starts college, they often don't finish. We mentioned 39 percent of Hispanic male high school graduates go to college, but then only 41 percent of those graduate. What makes the difference between someone quitting college and sticking around? That could be so individual to the student, but I've seen through my reporting, one of the big factors is just having a mentor there, someone to help you through, um, helping to say, hey, you can do this. Uh, I know it's tough. I know you might be working one or two or even three jobs, but you know this is something that's achievable. And what I've seen through my reporting as well, that many of those mentors are Hispanic men themselves who, who have been through similar situations. So they are able to say, hey, you, you really can do this because I, I did it myself. You write there are significant cultural barriers for some of these Hispanic men, which is also why they don't always stay. Describe those. Yeah, I actually can describe this from my own personal experience. Um, you know, oftentimes when you get to college, uh, you're going from a place where the majority of people look like you, and then you end up in college, and it's a very different reality. It's... Uh, in, in Colorado's uh, universities and colleges is predominantly white, and it can be very difficult to navigate a space where you're just not as comfortable or, or um, accustomed to uh, everything that's going on around you. And for students like Luis, uh, he's found a little bit of the same, um, but luckily that Pathways to Possible program has been able to connect him to students and, and mentors that look exactly like him or, or and share similar experiences, which does help make the process a little easier. 
The article points to the effects of these numbers on Colorado's economy. This is a state where one in five people identify as Hispanic. How would you quantify the effect of Hispanics not going to college? Right. So this is the fastest growing population in the state and not educating this group of students, especially men who um, often are head of families. It really leaves behind whole, not just whole family groups, but it leaves behind whole communities, whole communities in the state that could benefit from getting a college education and being connected to jobs that pay much better than maybe what they're they're uh, working at the moment. So this is concerning in, in the aspect that this is um, just a, a group that hasn't received much attention at all and, and could be really key to the economic prosperity of the state. Right. For Colorado, I mean, you want an educated workforce to grow the economy. You do. You do. And um, right now, the the state's projecting that more than three quarters of jobs will need a college degree or certificate of some sort. So when you have a group that has attained that at less than a quarter of of all of the population, it it really is a, a very concerning number and just paints picture that we're not doing enough for these students and and for this these communities and we're we're not connecting them to the economy uh, that has shifted in the state. Colorado has this goal of ensuring that 66% of residents have a college credential and yet the state isn't even close to that rate and doesn't seem to be heading in that direction as we said about 56% of all high school graduates are heading to college. What is the state doing uh, to meet that goal? You're right. We we are not very close, but that's not very close for certain groups, for, for Hispanic men, for uh, black men, black women, Hispanic women. Um, it, the breakdown when it, you look at who holds a degree and who doesn't in the state, uh, it really breaks down around uh, color lines and it breaks down around economic lines. And what is the state doing? So the state has... Um, at least this year, they're, they're looking into uh, putting more money into job retraining to help uh, older adults, at least, and communities get the education they need to reach the workforce. That's that's partly because of the pandemic. We have some pandemic money, uh, federal st- stimulus money that's going to help us put some money into that. But as far as you know, certain groups, a lot of the money and the resources that we have are very limited. Um, we have made changes in how we fund schools, but we haven't put as much money into the higher education funding just because of the pandemic and you know our lack of money just overall and competing right. interests. Is there a college in Colorado that's making some progress on this goal, and particularly when it comes to getting Uh, Hispanic men and other people of color into college and keeping them in college? We have put a lot of resource into getting students to college. Um, More and more schools are looking at becoming Hispanic serving institutions, which means that a quarter of their population is uh, Hispanic. As far as getting them through the door, there aren't very many good examples in the state. Among almost every college in the state, there's about a 10 percentage gap in the students who are graduating and Hispanic males. So as far as um, our outcomes here, they're still lagging, but um, I, I do know 
colleges are thinking more deeply about this, and, and especially as their population of Hispanic students are growing. And you write that some states, there's a school in Georgia that is doing this well. Yes. Uh, Georgia State University is, is often held up as a model of a school that really is um, able to get not just Hispanic men through to call graduation, but all students. And they work with uh, a lot of students who are first generation, the first to go to the college in their family and um, low income uh, and just don't have the financial means. And they've, they've done a really good job of keeping up with those students through um, technology like text messaging and um, some data tracking and proactive advising. So calling students when problems uh, pop up on, on data dashboards, not when students are coming to, to counselors to say, hey, I have a problem. So they're trying to head off everything really early and make sure students have the resources that they need to get through college. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Jason Gonzalez is the higher education reporter at Chalkbeat, Colorado. His recent article looks at the low rate of Hispanic men who graduate from high school and go on to college. We'll link to Jason's reporting at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. When we come back, preserving a language and its cultural heritage before it's too late. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is proud to sponsor Young Ameritown, an educational program for fourth through sixth grade students with immersive lessons in business, economics, and real world skills like money management and working at a radio station. Find out more about this program and others at yacenter.org. This is one of the rarest sounds on earth. <laughs> That's the language of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe in the Four Corners region of Colorado, and it's endangered. Just over 100 people on the planet speak it fluently. To save their language, the Ute Mountain Ute have created a digital dictionary with the help from the Language Conservancy. That's a group that works to protect endangered languages. Juanita Plentyholes is the project coordinator with the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. That was her voice you just heard speaking. Wilmea is with the Language Conservancy. Juanita, welcome. Thank you. And well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Juanita. Quick translation, you just said in Ute, if we don't preserve our language now, it will die in the future. How did you learn to speak Ute? Well, I learned growing up because I was born in 62, so everybody spoke Ute. Ute was spoken everywhere. Uh, My grandfather, my uncles, my mom just spoke Ute, so I grew up in that. Um, my mom never went to school, and she spoke Ute till the day she died. She never spoke English at all. I just learned it, you know, just hearing it all the time growing up. So it was just a part of me. How would you describe the language? It's really descriptive, and it's really long. It's not short. Do you think that's reflected in culture, um, how folks sit down and converse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you talk to an elder, you'll sit there for a long time because they'll just talk and talk. Did you teach your children to speak Ute? That's one thing I did not do. Um, 
you know, and a lot of parents, they, they're just so busy with work and, you know, the daily life. And my kids know things. They don't really speak Ute. And um, my older kids, they're half Lakota. So they really, um, my oldest son has really engaged in that. And so now he has a, an elder Lakota mentor in Albuquerque where he lives. So they meet together all the time. And my son has become fluent in Lakota. And so his teaching, his my grandsons are learning that. And then they learn a little bit of Ute words here and there. So with the products that we have now, the dictionary, they have it. And um, my oldest grandson, he's 14, and he's really interested in native languages. So he, when I go down there, he asks me questions about the different languages. And sometimes he uses words I don't even understand. And I'm like, um, yeah, I, okay, grandson, yeah. <laughs> so they, they're learning a little bit. How worried are you about the future of the Ute language? I think my generation and the generation below me, we understand very well and we can speak it, some of us. But the generation below that, they can understand but not speak. And then it goes down, down. So the younger generation now, the kids, it's not being spoken I mean, I think Ute is spoken in every household here, but not fluently. So they know little words and phrases. It's just important that we let them know how important the language is to us because it identifies who we are as people, as Native people. You know, your culture and language is what makes you distinct. So, you know, this work is important to me because we need to get it preserved somehow. So even if we don't teach it in our homes, down the road, who knows? It may nobody may even speak Ute anymore. But somewhere down the road, someone is gonna have a question. You know, maybe a child 20 years down the road, if we don't speak Ute anymore, they're gonna say, I wonder how the Utes talked. I wonder how they said things. And then here we'll have it preserved. It'll be here for them. Well, let's bring you in here. One study estimates that the world loses a language every 40 days. Do you agree with Juanita that the Ute language is in danger of going away if nothing's done? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we work with over 50 endangered languages in uh, North America, and, you know, we see firsthand, uh, just as Juanita was describing, how um, the different generations have different levels of fluency and proficiency in their languages. You know, we can go back almost to the year itself that the natural intergenerational language transmission stopped happening. And for most tribes in the United States, that was somewhere in the mid-1950s. So basically what that means is from, you know, 1954 onwards, that is, people born after 1954 were going to be primarily English language first language speakers. And so then what what happens is that the the language isn't reproducing itself. No new speakers are being created. And the real number of speakers is actually peaked in the mid-1950s, and then it's in a slow decline since then as, you know, uh, people naturally pass on. And just as Juanita was describing, you know, the average speaker age is, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, currently, right now in Wyoming, working on a project uh, with another tribe uh, for the Shoshone, 
And we are uh, working with speakers that are in their late 80s and 90s. So you've helped assemble this digital dictionary. Can you describe what it is? Uh, yeah. So the uh, we put together a program uh, using a, a method called the rapid word collection method that working with about uh, 20 elders, we were able to collect over the course of about two years, about 10,000 words. Uh, and we used computers and other kinds of specialized software to record uh, these words across 1,700 domains or categories. These essentially represent the entire universe of Ute, uh, everything from you know, plants and animals to prayers and medicines and uh, feelings and uh, all the other pieces of, of life and its, and its experience. And we tried to do a, a very thorough job of documenting that. And uh, essentially taking those uh, recordings and those transcriptions, we were able to transform that into uh, different things that could be utilized by students, including an online dictionary, uh, an app that can be downloaded onto the phone, and also uh, eventually a print dictionary. Juanita, why were you interested in a spoken dictionary rather than one that's written? Because, you know, when we look at words, and we've had a number of linguists that have worked with some of the programs before, and we do have words that are written, but, you know, with each linguist, they write it a little differently. So when you see a word that's written, it's you don't really know how to say the word. But for a lot of our, kid, our people that don't speak you, it's hard for them to say the word. So... I, I, you know, I said it's, it would be good if we had something that's spoken. So, you know, like dog, sadich, and then they would know that's how to say sadich. You know, it's not, you, you hear it, so you know how it's supposed to be pronounced. Have you seen people, especially young people, using the dictionary? A lot of people have downloaded it. Um, you know, a lot of people in a community, a lot of our adults that are living outside of the community have asked for that, and they've downloaded it as well because they're away from home. So, you know, just to hear the, the Ute words being spoken, it connects them back to home. How did the elders feel about committing the time it takes to create this kind of dictionary? You know, with the elders, they really enjoyed it. Because, you know, they're, like I mentioned, a lot, of pe- a lot of people are not speaking Ute anymore, the younger people. And so there's nobody for the elders to talk to. You know, they could sit and talk to their family members, but they don't really know what they're saying. And so with this, it gave them a chance to talk with each other. And a lot of them would forget how they say certain words. So they would ask each other, you know, how did they say, how did you say that again? And they really liked it. They really enjoyed it. And so now they're always asking me, when when are we going to do this kind of work again? And when they were here, they would say, we're talking Ute here. So you guys need to talk Ute too. So, you know, it was really good for us and the elders. Are there words or sentiments that don't exist in English that you can express in Ute? And what's an example of one? Um. Like the word goodbye, we don't have a word for goodbye in Ute. So, you know, they say, which means, oh, we'll see you again. Hmm. 
And Will, you've done similar projects with dozens of Native American tribes. Are there any Ute words that stood out to you? Um, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask that since I wasn't mm-hmm. the linguist working on those projects. But uh, I know from other languages uh, how many special words there are that often defy translation. You know, words like for uh, aurora borealis or other really interesting natural phenomenon. And that, you know, I know that there's just so much embedded in these languages uh, that's very emotional and very much tied to culture. It's especially difficult to express many of these concepts um, in English. This dictionary, this Ute dictionary, has 5,000 words. How many words are there in a language generally? Well, there's languages like English that have over a million words associated with them, and many tens of thousands are coined every year, often having to do with technology and new things that are developed. Most languages uh, typically in the world have anywhere between two and 500,000 words. And for the uh, indigenous and Native American languages that we work with, you know, they may have up to 100,000 words, but we're only at dictionaries typically as large as 50,000 words. Juanita, how hopeful are you that you can be saved as a spoken language? I'm pretty sure that it's going to be around for a while because, you know, like now, our Head Start program, we have a lady that goes down there and talks to them and teaches them um, words. And we have, you know, now the dictionary and we do have the dictionary, the the written dictionaries. We have um, posters of youth words and that um, body parts, you know, um, families, family trees, male and female side. But, you know, um, as we're going along, as new things are being discovered, we have to make words up for them, too. Because, you know, when when the cars first came, there was no U word for cars. So that was something they had to make up a word for it. They call cars quad, and quad means it goes. Mm. You know, same way with airplanes. You know, you chid, it flies. So, you know, right now I said, we're going to, we're at a point now in our lives where things have changed. Technology has come aboard. And, you know, there's no U words for that. So we're going to have to develop words for the computers. There's a word for telephone, but maybe we have to make up another word for cell phones. Juanita, how do you say thank you? Dobayak. 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 I don't think I got it, but thank you for being with us. Yeah. Thank you very much for, you know, inviting us to come on and interviewing us on this work that's important to us. Will, thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Juanita Plenty Holes of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in the Four Corners region. She's project manager for the tribe's new digital dictionary. Will Maya is chairman of the Language Conservancy. This month marks the beginning of a decade-long campaign by the United Nations to preserve indigenous languages. Experts predict the world could lose half of its languages in the next hundred years. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton. 
Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.